Well, next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll return to our series in the book of Psalms and then be in that until around Christmas time. But for this Sunday, on the heels of Missions Emphasis Week, which was last Sunday, I'd like to keep that missions momentum going a little bit by taking us to a passage that at first doesn't look like it's about missions at all, though it is. In fact, at first glance, this passage may not even seem that interesting. It's certainly an unusual passage to go to for a one-off message, sort of a floating message. As Ron said, I'm talking about 2 Timothy, the end of 2 Timothy, chapter 4. If you have a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you've read through the New Testament before, you know that these letters of the New Testament, they usually begin and end with some, some material that looks a little, well, dare we say, superfluous. These salutations sections, these greetings at the beginning and end of a book where Paul says, this guy says hi, and greet this person for me, and make sure you welcome so-and-so when he comes, and I hope to come to you soon. We might be tempted to think that that kind of material was useful and important and touching for the first century readers, but here we are 2,000 years later. We don't know most of these names. It seems like it's just not for us. We're reading someone else's mail. And so it's easy to skip those sections in your personal Bible reading, I'm sure. It's easy for preachers even to skip over them in the preaching of a book sometimes. Sometimes they just get lumped into whatever good stuff came before. Or perhaps a preacher will preach on a section like this, but really rack his brain the week before trying to figure out how to preach a salutation in an interesting way. Well, you may have read in the recent DSC newsletter uh, that we just hosted what's called a Simeon Trust preaching workshop for local pastors. Uh, I was humbled to be asked to be one of the speakers for that. And then I was scared when I found out my assignment for that little gathering. My assignment was to preach to preachers, mind you, on these closing verses of 2 Timothy, a greeting section which preachers really just don't love to preach on. Here we have in 2 Timothy 4, Paul's longest of of his closing greetings of all the letters. It's a passage that refers to 18 different people in eight different places. So a few weeks ago, I preached on it to about 30 pastors, some of our own DSC guys. Now, I don't know how well I did I don't know how much of an encouragement it was to others, but I know it was a great encouragement to me. This passage was a great, wonderful surprise to me, and it's been feeding my soul, it's been firing my heart, and it's been sustaining my ministry over the last month, and so I've been eager to share it to you. So that's why we're here today. Missions Emphasis Week plus Simeon Workshop equals 2 Timothy 4 today. Let's read it, starting in verse 9. Paul writes to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. 
Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for, for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Well, as Ron mentioned earlier in the service, as he read from 2 Timothy 1 and 2, that this is probably Paul's last biblical book that he writes. It's in the final months of his life, and he writes it from a Roman prison. He's been in a Roman prison before, uh, of sorts. The book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. But apparently after the book of Acts was written, he was released and then soon after arrested again, probably even by surprise. You notice he left his cloak and his favorite books behind. Uh, Seems like he got surprised at this arrest. And now he's in Rome again, this time a much harsher imprisonment. Not under house arrest, but he's in a cold, dark, damp, subterranean dungeon. And execution is increasingly apparent and growing near. Look at chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, where he says... To Timothy, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. I'm about to be spilled out. It's about to be done. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He knows his time's up. And it's in that context that he writes this pained, passionate, and personal letter to his his son in the faith, Timothy really his closest missionary companion over the years. Timothy began traveling with Paul back about Acts 16, traveling with Paul on his missionary journeys as a teen. And Timothy was taught by Paul throughout those early years. He watched Paul through those early years. More than anyone else, he was Paul's right-hand man. And so Paul, as Timothy grew, was more able, more gifted, more knowledgeable. Paul would send Timothy to a church or to a need when Paul couldn't go. Or he'd leave Timothy in a place when Paul couldn't stay. So Paul told the Corinthians, Be imitators of me. That is why I sent Timothy to you. You can't watch me. But I'll give you like a carbon copy of me, Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he'll remind you of my ways in Christ 
as I've taught them. He told the Thessalonian church, We sent Timothy, our brother, in God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, in order to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one may be moved by the afflictions they were currently going through. You see, Timothy's Paul's emissary, Paul's ambassador. He's an apostolic representative. He's the next best thing to Paul for a lot of these churches. And the biggest assignment that Paul gave Timothy was when he left him in Ephesus. Paul and Timothy and others had been ministering there in Ephesus for three years straight, Paul's longest time to stay put. And at the end of three years, Paul hands Timothy the keys. He says, you stay and keep working on this. It was a big church. It was an important church. It was a messy church. A lot of problems. And Timothy is left there as a young, apostolic, representative, pastor-like kind of guy. And so Paul eventually writes to him a letter that we call 1 Timothy. And it gives Timothy a 101 about pastoral ministry and church work, what you do. Here's what elders should look like. And make sure you read scripture and preach the word and look out for these guys and study the word and all that. But now... Timothy's still in Ephesus, as Paul writes, from a cold, damp dungeon with death looming on the horizon. And in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy to leave Ephesus for a time and come to him in Rome. That's really the main point of the book of 2 Timothy. Paul saying, Timothy, come to me. But Paul, ever the preacher, won't just write a letter, a quick little note saying, Timothy, get here soon. Here, go on, send it to Timothy. But ever the preacher, he gives us four chapters that we call 2 Timothy. And really, they're a, part of a pastoral locker room talk. I'd encourage you just to read 2 Timothy at your lunchtime today. And you'll see things like this. Timothy, be strong. Keep the gospel. Persevere. Don't give up. Press on. Finish well. Stay faithful to your calling. Endure suffering. Hold on to what I've taught you. Preach the word. Fulfill your ministry. And then finally we get to the end. Chapter 4, verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. And then repeated in verse 21 with, with some heightened urgency. Do your best to come to me before winter. From Ephesus to Rome through Troas will be a four to six month trip, land and sea. If he doesn't make it before winter, it'll be even longer because when winter comes, the seas are too rough and Timothy will have to wait it out. That's why he says, come before winter. So two pleas, chapter 4, verse 9, and then again in verse 21, for Timothy to come to Paul. But in between those verses, we have some rather odd but interesting communication about people and places. It feels like off-the-top-of-the-head communication. Didn't it feel like that? Some of it feels like perhaps Paul's writing as an aged, frail, old man. Perhaps it's a little bit of holy venting at times as he sort of lays out a a resume of suffering before Timothy. Much of it just looks like an update about who is where and what they're doing. It's almost like a, a phone call to grandma where she's telling you, do you know Jimmy's in California right now? 
Just what? Okay, they're there. What? Why? Huh? Paul's doing that kind of thing, it seems like. But it's that stuff that tells us why Paul wants Timothy to come, and it lets us peer into a window to see Paul's heart, to see the nature of the mission, to see what it means to be a Christian, to see what it looks like to finish well, to to look at what we can expect, to see what matters. Yes, Timothy is a pastor, and so 2 Timothy is to a pastor, but it has enormous relevance for all of us. We all have a race to run. Remember that language that Paul used? 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. On the one hand, Paul had finished the race of the Christian life and finished the race of his calling before the Lord to proclaim the gospel among the nations. On the other hand, he's still in the process of finishing the race, isn't he? He's still alive. right? He's still writing to Timothy. He's still doing some things even from the confines of prison. He's passing the baton to Timothy. And he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you have to finish your race. You have a race. You have a race of the Christian life, and you have a a distinct calling on your life to preach the gospel, to pastor, to shepherd, to lead out. Finish it well. And the race is still being run today. We all If we're in Christ, we all have this same race as well. We will all either finish it well or we won't. And because there are nations who haven't yet heard, the race is still being run. The fight is still not done until the master returns. I think there are three main things that Paul communicates in these closing verses of 2 Timothy. Three S's about the race. The first, there's strategy for the race. Strategy for the race. Now, because of the closeness of the Paul and Timothy relationship, we may think that Paul's plea for Timothy to come to him in Rome is about Paul's loneliness. It's a desire to see Timothy one last time or just be comforted with his presence. That's part of it. I mean, you actually see in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, Paul saying, I remember your tears, and I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. There's definitely father-son relationship going on when he calls Timothy to join him in Rome. But, but I think it's not mere relationship. It's not just about Paul's comfort in, in the familiarity of Timothy. Paul's calling Timothy to him because he's thinking strategy. Strategy. I think this whole passage shows Paul functioning like a military general giving marching orders. It's a general on his deathbed calling his lieutenant in and telling him where things stand, putting his best men in his key places. It's almost like Peyton Manning calling audibles at the line, isn't it? Can you picture Paul doing something like that here? In short, he is an apostle, and so he's acting like an apostle here. He's telling people where to go, what's needed most. He's thinking architecturally. And these people in 2 Timothy 4, 17 others than Paul, 
They make up something like a Swiss army knife for apostolic ministry. Different people, different ministries, different places, different needs, they're all changing. And so Paul's using them like extensions of his arm. As Timothy's called to Rome, look at verses 10 through 12. Well, at least let's start with the second half of verse 10. Demas is a disappointment. We'll come to him in a minute. But Crescens has gone to Galatia. He was with Paul. Now he's been sent to Galatia. Titus, who at one point was left on the Isle of Crete, Paul says, to set things in order and to appoint elders there, now he's needed in Dalmatia. Maybe he'll get a dog while he's there. Look at verse 12. Tychicus is sent to Ephesus. Remember, that's where Timothy is. So no doubt he's there to relieve Timothy of his duty so that Timothy can come to Paul in Rome. And then if you skip down, look at verse 20. Down here you have more of strategic maneuvering going on where Erastus stayed in Corinth. You always need someone keeping an eye on them in Corinth. And Trophimus, he was with Paul, but he got sick and had to stay behind in Miletus. Now, if you look at all these cities on a map, it's fascinating. What you notice is that it's so spread out. Paul left Jerusalem after his conversion, and that would have been down in the right-hand corner of the screen, even further than what we're seeing on that screen there. He's gone and preached the gospel where the gospel has not been known. And there he's set up churches and appointed elders and left key people in key places. And here's his final maneuvering before he goes home to glory. What do you see? Well, these are all coastal cities, aren't they? It's all spread out. Each one of them is a metropolis. It's like Paul putting his key people in key places. These are like the four corners of Paul's known world. It's all strategic. Still today, ministry and missions is about people and places. You can see Paul rejoicing over that map, thinking about who is where and how the gospel is Even now in Rome, that was his personal goal, to get to Rome and preach the gospel there. He's there preaching the gospel in Rome and has been for some time as he writes 2 Timothy. And yet the mission still goes on because the Lord Jesus didn't say, go to Rome and stop. He said, go into the uttermost parts of the world. So there's still need. And we still need others, just like Paul needed others. Paul couldn't do it alone All the more, we need partners in the gospel like we see Paul using here. Praise God for gospel partnerships, ones that are near, ones that are far, ones that we have now, ones that we'll pass on to in the next generation to come. Oh, none of us is an apostle. There's no architect behind this thing anymore. Uh, We don't have an evangelical pope We don't believe that the apostle ministry is supposed to get passed down one guy to the next, to the next, to the next, so that this thing that Paul's doing in 2 Timothy 4 keeps happening. But, but there are still gospel partnerships. And those gospel partnerships share the very same spirit that Paul is showing us here. 
And that's why we're committed to connect with and pray for and work with and partner with others beyond Desert Springs Church. That's why we partner with Dr. Jacobo in Guatemala. That's why we pray for and support Hugo's work in the Arab world. That's why we're partnering with missions agencies like Pioneers who know infinitely more about what it means to do frontline missions work than we do. That's why we join hands with other churches in New Mexico through something called the Gospel Coalition. That's why we host things like a Claris conference or a preaching workshop for others. That's why we get together, New Mexican pastors get together here at our church uh, at least quarterly, sometimes more, to pray together and encourage each other and seek to refine each other. We can't do it alone. Paul couldn't do it alone. You can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. Desert Springs Church can't do it alone. This thing is massively bigger than any one guy. And we have to, any one church for that matter as well, we have to think not just us and not just success now, whatever that would look like. We have to think overall health. We have to think generationally, not just next Sunday. This whole thing's bigger than our lifetime. Don't you see that from Paul? Paul's dying and the beat goes on. He's setting things up for him not to be there. And it's not just apostles and their representatives and pastors that are needed for this work. You need hospitality. You need financial support. You need people like Prisca and Aquila, elsewhere called Priscilla and Aquila. You see in verse 19, Paul just gives them a simple greeting to pass along from Timothy, or through Timothy, to Priscilla and Aquila. But boy, there's a lot of history there with them. They started traveling with Paul back in Acts chapter 18. They may have lived, uh, they may have hosted Paul for up to 18 months and supported him there. They may have been business partners with Paul. They were also tent makers. So in Romans 16, Paul says that they were his fellow workers in Christ who risked their necks for his life. Who knows what that means? But not like Demas, not like others who deserted him. These people had been there for him time and time again. It's warm and it's special when Paul says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. Just like it is when he says, greet the household of Onesiphorus in the same verse. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. Same book here. Here he speaks of Onesiphorus. How often he refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. And when he arrived in Rome, he searched earnestly from me, for me. And he found me. So Paul says to Timothy, you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. We don't know, but Timothy knew. Paul knew. They knew all that they had done for the cause of Christ. And it seems like what they've done most is take care of, show warmth and hospitality to, and be there for Paul. You also find in 2 Timothy 4, Paul saying, verse 11, when you come, bring Mark with you, for he's very useful to me for the ministry. Now that's significant. Reading between the lines, you have to know that's really significant because back in Acts chapter 13, 
Paul and Barnabas and Mark went out on a missions tour, and not long into it, Mark went home. We don't know why. It just says he went home. We do know Paul was ticked. Because years later, this is now Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas about to head out again on another mission tour, and Barnabas wants to take his cousin Mark with them. He wants to give Mark another shot. But Paul would have none of it. It turned into a heated dispute. You can read about it in Acts 15. A heated dispute between Paul and Barnabas, and they actually parted ways. Paul took Silas and went on one tour, and Barnabas took Mark, and they went on another. So now, 20 years later, 2 Timothy is being written, and Paul says, bring Mark along. He's useful to me for the ministry. Wow, what a sweet surprise. What a great reminder. A a great reminder on the one hand that sharp disagreement can happen even among godly, wise men. Not everything is black and white. Whether Mark deserved a second chance or not, we don't know. We don't know if later on Paul regretted not taking Mark or whether later on Mark repented of giving up and heading back to Jerusalem. We, we don't know. But we know that sharp, sharp disagreement can happen among even the most godly. We also know here that restoration is always possible. We shouldn't give up. Even 20 years later, there's a happy ending. And whatever we should make of Mark giving up and heading home for a time, we should note that some sad stories do have happy endings. Mark goes on mission later on. He's one of Paul's last acquaintances, last companions. And he writes part of the gospel, right? A gospel account that we call Mark. But maybe there's something more going on when Paul says to bring Mark. Because notice in verse 13, he says this, When you come, also bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Let's take some time to focus on the books and the parchments here. might not sound that interesting to focus on books and parchments, but I mean, only a guy who has a picture of books in his study of books would talk about the books here for any length of time, but I I really feel the need to. I I think this is part of the strategy, and I think Mark might be related. Now, when you read commentaries on this part of 2 Timothy, you see a plethora of different uh, understandings of what books and parchments might mean. And one of the divides is whether these are two different things, because the ESV says books, and above all, the parchments. Like, if you have to choose, make sure the parchments... Not just in general, the books. Some others think that it means it could be translated like that is, not above all or especially. That there's no distinction here. It's like saying, bring me my books. I mean the parchment ones. It really doesn't matter though. The question is not whether there are two different kinds of things here, but really what's on them, right? What's in them that Paul needs them? So some people say these are unused pages for Paul to write stuff down on or send letters out with. Some say this is part of Paul's personal journey or copies of his letters that he's already written. 
Some say it's a copy of the Greek Old Testament or parts of it. Some say it could be early parts of the New Testament Bible. It could even be parts of the New Testament that are works in progress. Remember, only Luke is with Paul. Luke, the author of the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Remember, Paul says, bring Mark. Mark writes a gospel account too. Isn't it curious that within such a short amount of time in 2 Timothy 4, you've got Paul saying, Luke is with me alone, get Mark, and make sure you bring my parchments. Do these things go together? Well, setting dates for when books of the Bible were written is no exact science at all. It's a frustrating thing to actually study. But though we don't know for sure, it's possible, it's possible that what Paul's doing here in 2 Timothy 4, when he says, Mark is now useful to me, bring him to me, is that he's wanting to coordinate a meeting, Mark, Luke, and Paul, in Rome, so they can talk about writing gospel accounts about Jesus. They can compare notes. Maybe Mark will take what Luke's written and reduce it down. Maybe Luke will take what Mark's written and make sure that's all in. Maybe Luke, as he's writing Acts, will want to hear from Mark about what happened on Team Barnabas when they went out. That's all part of the picture, perhaps. Oh, and by the way, Timothy, while you're there, get my coat, because we're going to be working on this stuff all winter. It's going to be cold. Now, it's either that or Paul's just saying, bring me my Bible, some kind of Bible, some part of the Bible. And it certainly could be that. That's, that's probably what most of us have heard. That's probably what you can imagine. Paul alone in his last days in a jail cell, reading his Bible, journaling, praying, communing with God, and riding the storm out. But maybe Paul's not just huddled up and waiting it out with Bible and prayer and journaling. Maybe he's making sure that Mark talks to Luke and that we get the Gospels right and that the Acts accounts are thorough. There's just no quit in this guy, is there? Do you see the difference between writing it out with Bible and prayer and journal, which isn't bad, isn't bad at all. It certainly wouldn't be sin to ride out the last days, huddled up with Jesus, waiting for the pearly gates. But there's something better about communion with him and great commission for him. There's something great about huddling up with Jesus in the jail cell and handing things off to Mark and Luke and and others and Timothy. Not just thinking about self in heaven and his time to go, but thinking about church and mission and it getting out there. What a model for Timothy. What a model for us. What a contrast to American retirement. The second thing I want to see, I show you in 2 Timothy 4, is suffering in the race. I spent most of my time on on this first point, we'll go faster as we go through it. The suffering in the race is in this next section, verses 14 to 16, but really it's also part of what we just saw in the first section of our passage, verses 9 to 13. Now, let's not miss that. You may have already connected some dots that the strategizing is also part of suffering, 
but let's make it explicit. The sending and going is a kind of suffering, isn't it? It's costly to send away your best people. It hurts. This year, we did our first church plan. Forty of our favorite people, our best people, left to go to a church in Rio Rancho for the cause of Christ, for the spread of the gospel in our city. In the near future, we'll send off a dear family to the frontline missions work in North Africa. That hurts. On a smaller level, isn't it painful even when dear friends move on to do work elsewhere? A great family moves on to D.C. or something else. The Nielsens move up to Madison, Wisconsin. The Schneebergers move to San Diego. It's happy and it's sad when, our, when some of our favorite people go off to seminary. And who knows if they'll move back here or not. For that matter, isn't it hard when a community group grows and needs to divide and grows and needs to divide? Just when you were making such great connections and feeling so at home with these people, all of a sudden now they're going over there and new ones are coming in and it doesn't just feel right. But why do we do it? For the sake of the gospel, for the spread of the gospel, for the multiplying of the glory of Christ in this world, because the mission needs it, even though it hurts. And it hurts to send people off. It hurts when they leave. Paul, remember, is alone, partly because he sent everyone away. Priscilla and Aquila have to stay in Corinth because they're needed most there. Trophimus got too sick and couldn't travel with Paul anymore. Crescens was with Paul, but he was needed in Galatia. Titus was needed in Dalmatia. Tychicus was needed in Ephesus. The mission is costly. It's like a war. Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, Timothy. A good soldier doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of this world that he might please the one who enlisted him, Paul said earlier in his book. The mission is costly, and that's why some give up, like Demas did. In verse 9, he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me, verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Apparently, Demas had been functioning like Timothy, a a right-hand man to Paul. When Paul wrote Colossians, Demas was right there as a fellow worker. When he wrote Philemon, Demas was there as a right-hand man for Paul. And now, he's deserted Paul and gone to Thessalonica. We don't know if that's full-blown apostasy. It's possible he deserted the mission field and deserted Paul, but didn't desert the Lord Jesus. Maybe it was comfort, maybe it was, maybe it was safety as things get heated in Rome. Maybe now it's clear that anyone who identifies with Paul is going to face what Paul's facing. It could be that he just chickened out. Or it could be something much more serious. It could be that Paul is saying here that Demas didn't just desert Paul, but he, that he, he deserted the Lord Jesus He deserted his confession. He gave up on the whole thing and proved that he never really had it from the beginning. I mean, 1 John 2.15 tells us that there is a love for the world that can indicate an absence of the love of God in our hearts. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Regardless of whether it's apostasy or whether it's just uh, chickening out, it stings Paul. It breaks his heart. It stings pastors whenever this happens. It's a sobering reminder for all of us to keep ourselves from idols, to love not the world or the things that are in the world, that no man can serve two masters, and that we not leave our first love, that we not be easily shaken by suffering, that all who live godly in this present age will suffer persecution, that if you think you stand, take heed, lest you fall. Demas didn't finish well. But worse is this guy named Alexander. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He says in verse 15 that he strongly opposed our message. Now earlier in the same book, sorry, in the first book that Paul wrote to Timothy, there's an Alexander. And there Paul says that he's been causing trouble and teaching false things, and Paul has now handed him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Serious judgment. It might be the same Alexander, but it really doesn't matter. Uh, Alexanders were a dime a dozen back then, and figuratively speaking, Alexanders are a dime a dozen in every age. I can name several Alexanders in my 13 short years of pastoring, who have done great harm to the message, who have greatly opposed the truth. I can name three times as many Demases who just quit. And you don't have to be a veteran pastor to know that. You, you've seen Demas stories. You've, you know Alexander's. Paul names Alexander to Timothy. He rather noticed vaguely, says that he's done some harm and he opposes the message. We don't have specifics. And he does warn Timothy of him. Beware of him when you come to town. He's trouble. But otherwise, he commits it to the Lord. Verse 14, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Sometimes outright, cruel opposition like Alexander is easier to deal with than apathy. So notice verse 16, Paul writes these shocking words. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Breathtaking. No one came to testify on behalf of Paul when he was on trial. No one came to vouch for him. What? I mean, no one? Really? A trial alone. Could you imagine going through some kind of trial? Picture it in our day. And you're alone in the courtroom. There's no one there who knows you. There's no one there who can testify for you. Similarly, in chapter 1, verse 15 of this book, Paul said, all who are in Asia have turned away from me. Now you have to smirk a little bit here because he says all have turned away from him, but Luke is with him. Not all, Luke's there. 
And you kind of have to smirk because he says, only Luke is with me. But then look at verse 21 of chapter 4. Uh, by the way, Eubulus sends his greetings, and so does Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Wait, I thought only Luke was with you. What's he doing? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe there was a time when he was alone, and, and then now he's not. But it also might be holy hyperbole. And if so, he's emphasizing his aloneness, so that he can contrast it and make a better point. That's the third thing in your notes. Strength for the race. Strength for the race. You see, verse 16 says, At my defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. And then verse 17 turns a a corner so sharp, so wonderfully. But the Lord stood by me. Contrast, right? Maybe there's holy hyperbole. No one's with me. Only Luke is with me. Get here soon. If you don't, I got Jesus. Just Jesus. That's enough. That's enough. He stood by me. And he strengthened me. He's emphasizing that Jesus is sufficient in a Roman prison when death is looming. It's almost like he boasts in his aloneness so that he can say, Jesus shines all the brighter right now. It's like he sings, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, so that he can quickly just turn it and say, like a river glorious is God's perfect peace, over all victorious in its bright increase. The Lord was with him, and that was enough. The Lord strengthened him, strengthened him to endure, yes. Strengthened him to not give up and and to, to know his nearness and his comfort and care. But specifically, Paul says, strengthened me to proclaim so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. This is no doubt talking about one of his defenses. You got one before Felix in Acts 24. You got another one before Agrippa in Acts 26. You can read Paul's speeches there and see what he's talking about as he talks here about preaching the gospel in this time of uh, being on defense. And when he gives these defenses, he he doesn't defend himself, actually. He just preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel in Rome like he wanted to do. Probably not like he planned to do. He preaches the gospel in Rome by way of his arrest and by way of the judicial system. It's all right. God strengthened him in it. God gave him opportunity to proclaim that all the Gentiles might hear it. That same Jesus, not a different one. The same Jesus is near to us in our trials. When no one stands with us, he stands with us, and that's enough. The Lord stands with us, and he strengthens us, even when it feels awfully weak and fragile. He's all we need. He's all we need until our dying day. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 18, his dying day, when he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. What do you mean he's going to rescue from every evil deed? You're in prison. You just said that you're about to be poured out. You finished the race. It's done. 
What do you mean you're about to be delivered? Yeah, that's my final deliverance. That's my final magic act, you could almost say. That's the final miracle. He'll bring me home, and he'll bring me home through, through martyrdom. That's the worst they can do, is take Paul out, and he goes to be with the Lord. For me to live as Christ, and die as gain. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. In all these things, Paul says in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors. In famine, you're a conqueror? In death, you're a conqueror? Under the sword, you're a conqueror? It doesn't look like it. Rembrandt, in the 17th century, painted a picture of Paul in his last days. I love it. Notice he's wearing his cloak. A cloak would have been uh, sort of like a, a, a V thing with a neck cut in the middle. He's wearing his cloak and he has his parchments with him. This is after Second Timothy was written, no doubt, in Rembrandt's interpretation. As that stays up there, let me just suggest a number of things that our passage confronts and encourages our passage confronts certain ideas of comfort, doesn't it? Whether comfort is just external and temporary, whether that's primary comfort, or whether internal comfort is what's essential and primary. I think the passage confronts certain ideas of success. Success both individually and ministerially or missionally as a church. How do we measure success as a church? Are we always going from good to great? Is it always just cloud nine to cloud ten? Did Paul fail? All turned against him. Only a handful are with him. He's still got some key guys, but some of them are dropping like flies. He's putting them in key places. And praying the Lord would be with them as the Lord is with him. Did Paul fail? Did Jesus? No one stood with him at his defense. All the disciples fled. What if things in ministry go slow? What if there are seasons of dryness? What about steps backwards? Is that okay? Michael Kelshaw, a good friend of mine here in town, his dad's a longtime pastor. And when Michael started pastoring, his dad told him, Michael, preach the word, and every five years, look up and see how it's going. It's a patient view of ministry, and I think one that Paul would commend. I think this passage confronts attitudes of both triumphalism and defeatism. There's no woe is me in this passage. Neither is there cloud nine. It's something else. It's cloud nine in a jail cell. It's victory and success when everyone's abandoned you. It's dang tough is what it is. It's wonderfully tender. The passage confronts ideas of ministry and mission which rely merely on systems and events and strategies and promo and programs. 
Paul sees the work as people work, as Bible work, as gospel work, as global gospel work, as hard work, as patient work, as generational work. Paul, in this passage, confronts a vision of life which merely coasts into eternity or where the easiest years are at the end. Paul's a wild old man going out with a bang. He encourages us that the word is wonderful. It reminds us, this passage does, that the word came to us through much blood and sweat and tears. It encourages us that Jesus is enough and he's always enough. His grace is sufficient. It encourages us that he is shown most strong often when we feel most weak when things look most bleak. The passage encourages us that the gospel is glorious. It's not only our only hope, but it's the only hope for the world, and so it must be spread. Too much is at stake. It's not about us. And so it encourages us to invest in what is most important and longest-lasting. It encourages us to do hard things for the cause, to embrace those hard things which do best for the kingdom. It encourages different gifts and callings and assignments. The Lord doesn't call every one of us to be missionaries or to go to prison for the gospel. It might encourage you to fulfill your ministry in an Onesiphorus sort of way, with hospitality and warmth supporting the gospel as God gives opportunity. But to do hard things and to trust that God is in it and to trust that this little Jesus movement that started you know, back in the early parts, the first century, it's now a great global and glorious and ever-growing reality. It reminds us of what is sure. We know how the story ends. We know where this thing is going. We know it's not done yet, but we know that it soon will be. We know that in heaven there'll be a multitude which no man can number from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. And they will all, for all eternity, be saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and honor and blessing. And the passage encourages us, hence, in the meantime, to finish the race. Finish the race. May it be that we one day will say with Paul, I fought the good fight imperfectly, but I, I genuinely have, and I, I finished the race. And there is laid up for me a crown in heaven, which the Lord will give to me, and not only me, but all those who love his appearing. If you believe that, say amen.